You are listening to Politically Entertaining, your Cliff's Notes to American Politics. And now your host, Frank and Byron. Politically Entertaining. I'm Frank here with Byron. And Byron, we're back after a, a season one hiatus. This is season two. Uh, it's just amazing how much has happened since, I guess, the last episode we recorded in the season one. Obviously, we, uh, you know, talked about Trump's victory uh, in, in the election and all that. But since then, so much has happened, so much to get to. We have a great interview. Just really excited to be back for season two. Just uh, let the listeners know uh, what we're going to do this season and what we're all about. Wow, man, like you say, a lot happened after that uh, season one finale. We lost a lot of celebrities. Of course, we had the shocking election of a Trump right before the finale. Uh, this episode in particular, we're going to, me and Frank are going to try to limit how much we talk because we have a real great interview with Tim Wise, uh, who gave some great answers. Uh, we're at a point in our country where racially we're really divided. Politically, we're divided in all, probably ever before. So, uh, we're going to be talking to him about those things. And this season, you know, like I said, hopefully we're going to try to motivate you to be active in your community. It's not an election year, so there are going to be some episodes that probably won't be as political as last year's. But uh, we'll still keep you informed of what's going on. But we want to try to focus on a lot of social issues as well this year. Um, <clears throat> before we get to that interview, Frank, um I mentioned how we lost a lot of celebrities towards the end. Well, really all of 2016. Uh, but speaking of celebrities, we've had quite a few high-profile black celebrities that met with Trump in his uh, Trump Tower. You had Kanye West, Jim Brown, uh, Ray Lewis, Martin Luther King Jr. even met with him this week. And the most polarizing seemed to be Steve Harvey. Did you have a problem with any of these people meeting with Trump? Are you in the position of, you know, we know how Trump is. You shouldn't be meeting with him or we should give him a chance and hear him out. He is the, the president, the next president. Uh, what, how did you feel about these celebrities meeting? Because they got some harsh critics, especially Steve Harvey, everything from Coon to Uncle Tom to everything. So what were your thoughts on that? That's a great question. And it's a great question whether or not, you know, black people should be meeting with the president. And I think D.L. Hughley, actually, uh, he has a little a soundbite, which I won't really play. He, he has some expletives at the end. Uh, but he basically made a great point. He said that, you know, the president is meeting with, you know, comedians, actors, rappers, you know, celebrity personalities, because that's how he sees us. He said he's not meeting with, you know, the you know elected officials. He got he got into the White House by basically saying the, the current president uh, is was was not um, a citizen. He was a Muslim. All these negative things about him to, to get into the presidency. So, you know, he he created a, a very negative image of of, of African Americans. And so now for people to be turning around, coming around, saying, "Oh, he's a good man." Well, my question is, what is, what is what is he? The thing that blows our mind is, okay, you meet with the guy. I don't. I, I'm gonna take. A, I'm gonna have a different take here. I don't have a problem with them meeting with him. But what my question is, what is coming out of these interviews or this conversation where they think he's a good person? Because if you look at his cabinet, you think about guys like Stephen Bannon, you think about Jeff Sessions, you think about um, was it Rex Tillerson, uh, all these guys, yeah. all, all these guys who just, I mean, either do bit shady business, shady race practices, you know, just statements they've done and said different things and it just the list goes on those are just people that stand out and so it's like what what about him is a good man what about him is 
speaks speaks that he's going to be a good for the African-American community. I, I don't see it. So my thought is how are the question is this. What is Steve Harvey's connection to the inner city? Like, what is he really going to do? Like, what, what what is Donald Trump through Steve Harvey going to do? And who is Steve Harvey to say whether or not he's a good man? I just don't think that these these guys are fit to speak for the African-American inner city, in my opinion, because, one, they, they obviously are the 1%, and they don't live there, and they seem to be somewhat out of touch. So, to me, I have an issue with their response because, to me, they should be going there saying, hey— what are you what are you doing like you, you know your cabinet is not going to make progressive changes in a positive note for the black community like you're to me there's no reason to um I don't know. I, I may, maybe I change my. I wouldn't even meet with the guy personally. <laughs> you know, I, I'm sitting up here talking myself out of my own argument, but what I'm saying is just based on his cabinet he's not going to change anything. He's does he's not interested in changing anything. So just to me um, certainly for them to go in there and then come out of him there saying he's a good man is even more maddening. So I just think that overall, um, I'm just shocked at how these guys basically are cowering in the celebrity of Donald Trump because he's a president. I mean, I don't know what he could say to me if I was to meet with him. I don't know what he would say to me personally that would ever change my mind about anything he said to get to this point in his cabinet appointees. And that's kind of what I would like to ask Steve Harvey um, or uh, Kanye West. Well, not really Kanye West because who knows what he would say. But Steve Harvey uh, and Jim Brown, especially a guy like Jim Brown, who militant guy, you know, pretty much retired because, you know, he felt like a certain way about the way he's being treated, being paid. He was a people still regard him as the greatest football player of all time. And then I was just shocked. I, I'm certainly not going to question uh, Jim Brown, the work he's done with gangs and and the, and, the, and the things that he's done in the inner city or whatever. Uh, I think with all the celebrities I named, they none of them were born rich. They definitely grew up in, you know, rough scenarios, uh, some poor. So I think they can relate to what it's like to live in the inner city, even though they're rich now. But I have to agree with you since you wind up changing your answer to no. I personally wouldn't meet with him. I wasn't, I don't know how productive we are with calling people Coon and, and all these names or whatever. But for me personally, I wouldn't have met with him. And for the simple reason that somebody that has uh, dabbled in racism like he has and benefited from it. And just time and time again, where he refused to uh, apologize to the Central Park Five, when it's been proven that they're not guilty, he still refuses to apologize, even though he took out a full page ad saying how they should be killed and called them wild animals. He won't apologize. The things that he said during his campaign, it's like Maya Angelou say, when somebody shows you who you are, who they are, believe them. So I believe him. And therefore, for me, he has to prove that he wants to fix inner cities, poverties, and, and, and help minorities. He has to prove it. And, and photo ops with Kanye West and Steve Harvey, isn't going to do it. I wouldn't allow myself to be used like that. And it's the same thing when Jeff Sessions brought out these black pastors to defend him. It's like, you know, if you rock with Jeff Sessions like that, that's cool, you know, but you're not just going to call me up because as, as some type of racial shield, you're not going to use me like that. I wouldn't allow myself to be used. But, um, you know, we'll see what happens. Uh, I, I definitely think he's using them. When Giuliani and, and and Mitt Romney and all those guys came down there, he didn't come off the elevator and take photo ops with him. He, he seems to be mainly doing it with the black celebrities. So he knows he, he knows what he's doing, and I, I just wouldn't have met with him. Um, so Trump is now our president. 
our 44th president, Barack Obama, is now, you know, a civilian, so to speak. He's a former president. I wanted to talk to you about his legacy, because, as you know, the Republican Senate, the Republican led Senate and the Republican led House a couple of weeks ago voted to repeal the uh, what's called the Affordable Care Act. But many of you know it as Obamacare, which is one of the major steps in actually repealing it. Um, that, you know, because that law, that bill has his name on it, I think that's a huge part of this legacy. And if they successfully get rid of it, I, I'm, I'm wondering, does it erase a lot of his legacy? Uh, on the downside, you look at under his presidency, he did raise the debt by $10 trillion. It was like at $9 trillion when he came in office. It's almost at $20 trillion now. So that's not good. Um, but what I would say is good, because I think one of his biggest accomplishments was, was killing Bin Laden. Even Sean Hannity gives him credit on that, and Hannity gives him credit on nothing. But I think even if they successfully repeal Obamacare, the fact that he, is, he has made Congress view health care as a right instead of a privilege is a success. And it won't he won't get credit for that. You know, if the Republicans replace Obamacare with something, whether it works or not, he won't get any credit for it. And they'll be patting themselves on the back. But I'm telling you, every president, I would say in the last 40 or 50 years, have tried to do some version of universal health care. And if they successfully repeal Obamacare, he will, I guess, so to speak, fail in actually doing it. But the fact that he forced them because 10 years ago, Congress wasn't trying to do this. They wasn't moving it. When, when Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton were in office and tried to uh, pass some type of universal health care, they 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 fought it, you know, vigorously. And as a matter of fact, Obamacare is pretty much a version of their alternative to universal health care when Hillary and Bill tried to pass it in the early 90s. But, you know, Obama's name is on it. So now they're against it. So I do think it's too early to give him a, a an honest grade on what he did. But what are your views so far on Obama's legacy in the eight years that he was in office? So, I mean, it's a, that's a huge question to say what's the legacy. I think that to judge his impact, we talk about football sometimes on the show. I think you got to look at it like a draft class, right? You got to give it three to five years after the fact to see exactly what his policy all his policies how it worked out you know tpp could end up being a huge win or loss against him that can be big obviously uh affordable care act i think is, is going to end up being a win regardless because while there are people who are diehard people that want, want it repealed uh just because it has a name on it i think there there's been a number of people there's even a video on youtube where uh, a guy who says he's a republican you know, credits the president for saving his life and asks Paul Ryan to his face, hey, what are you going to do? You know, you want to repeal Obamacare, what are you going to replace it with? So they're on the hook to know that there's a lot of people that are that are that are covered and have health care now who are both Republican and Democrat and would not appreciate losing the benefits of Affordable Care Act. Um, as far as other things he's done, um, you know, obviously my mind has changed on a few things. Like four years ago, you asked me what he did. I thought he was, you know, great. But some of the things that guys like uh, QB has you know, caught to my attention about, you know, some of the reparations and things like that. I think that the president could have pushed more for, for certain, certainly those kind of things for African-Americans. I don't know if he could have got a specific payout, but at least some kind of uh, program or leverage for descendants of slaves to get some benefit because it's been done before. I know that it would not have been viewed as popular, but certainly when you look at it like as, as dis economically disadvantaged black people are, 
um, certainly to take that step. You know, I kind of think that in some ways the Republicans were expecting him to do that, but he never really went there because they kind of felt like, um, you know, that that was coming. And, I, you know, I think they, he missed a chance to do it. I'm, at the end of the day, his legacy is going to be something that to me, I would I would say he's definitely a, a good president. Uh, he's going to be a great president. There's a lot of things that still have to come out in the wash to really see. But certainly, he, you know, once you see these next four years of scorched earth, you'll be, you know, knowing who was a better president and certainly when you look back historically and you see some of the things you mentioned like healthcare being a right and some of the other progressive things he did um with with education technology and things like that i think that that will be remembered but it's like anything else you know at the time people have a hard time appreciating uh change when it's happening so uh, i think he's a good president i think the the history will reflect well on him we ask that you follow us on Twitter at The Vocal Minority. Also, like our Facebook page, Politically Entertaining. Going to get into this interview with Tim Wise. Uh, ask that you listen up, man. Me and Frank are proud of this interview. This guy offers some great insight. Uh, so let's check it out. Let's talk to Tim Wise. Listen up. It's time for a politically entertaining exclusive interview. Today's guest is an author of several books, such as Dear White America, White Like Me, Under the Influence. He's an anti-racist activist. Tim Wise, I want to thank you for joining us today. Thank you for making time. Uh, thank you for having me. I appreciate that. I've been um, watching several videos on you uh, discussing like white privilege uh, Donald Trump's tactics in last year's election, white supremacy. One of the videos I saw last I checked had like over 14 million views. And uh, we'll definitely get into a lot of those topics you discuss. But my first question for you is like, what made you fight this cause? Like, was there a specific action that said, you know what, this isn't right. I have to speak up, speak out where your parents, uh, you know, racist activists. Uh, what What made you fight this cause like you do? Well, I, I don't think it was one thing. I think, you know, everybody that does this work, um, you know, whether that person is a person of color, whether they're white, as I am, um, has a, a series of things, you know, that happened to them over their lifetime. And for me, I mean, I think it was a combination of and I, I talk about this in, in White Like Me, which is uh, the first book I wrote. And it's my memoir. And I, I talk about it a little bit in there. Um, you know, I grew up in a home that was certainly civil rights oriented. I, I've lived in the South all my life. I grew up with, I guess, what would be considered, you know, quote unquote, liberal or progressive parents. Um, they were a little too young to have been actively involved in the civil rights movement itself, but they uh, were certainly sympathetic to the movement. And at least on my father's side of the family, the family itself was was sympathetic and supportive of the movement. Um and so growing up with that in the 70s, uh, I was born in 1968. I went to preschool at Tennessee State University, which, you know, is a historically black college here in Nashville. And so, you know, I was sort of in a peer group early on that was mostly black kids. And, and, I, and I, I'm not saying that to be like every other white person that says, oh, I got black friends because we all say that and we're usually lying. <laughs> but uh, but. For for a while there, when I was a little kid, you know, I didn't have much but black friends. I mean, it's pretty much who I hung out with. And and then also, you know, being at TSU for, for preschool and I'm talking like three and four years old, 1971, 72. Um, what I think that did for me, in addition to the peer group, 
which I think helped me to identify with black kids and, 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 uh, to, you know, to, to have this sort of connection to blackness, I suppose, uh, in the larger social sense. But it was also, I was at a black college in their preschool program. So the teachers, you know, the people that ran the program, the women that were the administrators of the program were mostly African American women. So, you know, what that meant to me at three and four years old was I was sort of learning really early and at a time in our history as a country when this was incredibly rare, I'd say it's still rare, but certainly was in the early seventies, I was being subordinated to black authority. You know, you're, you're being told by your parents, Hey, you know, mind your teachers, do what they tell you to do. Well, you know, how many white kids in the early seventies or even today are having to actually listen to black authority figures at the age of three and four, not very many. And so what I think that did and again, I talk about this in the book, um, was it sort of it sort of made it easier for me to hear when black folks, you know, as I got older, would talk about what they were experiencing because I had learned to respect black authority at the age of three and four and not to not to automatically question it the way I think white folks are generally in this culture. Um, I was able to hear that. You know, I wasn't going to be the white guy when I when I became a, an activist and and an organizer, and I, you know, had black folks telling me in New Orleans where I went to college, you know, this is sort of what's going on. I wasn't going to be the guy that said, well, are you sure? You know, maybe, maybe you're seeing things, you know, maybe you're exaggerating because I didn't start with the assumption that my authority was better than theirs. And so I think, um, that certainly had a lot to do with it, you know, the, the, the parental upbringing, but I think it was also being in New Orleans, being around amazing activists and educators and mentors, mostly of color, also some white allies. Um, that sort of took me and, and shaped me from somebody who I think, you know, had intellectually maybe an understanding of these issues, but sort of made it more affective and emotional and, and personal, uh, for me. And, and, and I, I think the combination of those is probably what created in me a recognition of the importance of fighting racism. That's, that's a, that's a very unique upbringing, uh, for, for a young white kid. Um, one one of the videos I saw, I believe you were speaking to Google in uh, Silicon Valley, and you yeah. was set, you was talking about how after the 08 election of President Obama, how you got a lot of emails with people saying, "Oh, you're gonna have to find something else to do," <laughs> and you know one of the one of the worst names that a black person can call another black person is an Uncle Tom yeah. or a sellout. Uh, I was wondering before you were numb to, I'm sure, a lot of negative comments you get. Uh, in the early going, do you remember uh, what the most stinging comment you you've been called? Is there anything that sticks out to you that, you know, before you were inundated with thousands of hate mail, the one comment that made you say, wow, that 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 kind of stung that hurt right there? Well, not really. And I think the reason is, you know, it's sort of like there is no racial slur that you can use against white people that is comparable to the N word. There's also no no critique of a quote unquote sellout or somebody who challenges their own group that's equal to an Uncle Tom because Uncle Tom really, you know, refers to somebody who's a member of an oppressed group, in this case, oppressed black folks who sell out their people. That's a very serious charge. And that's something that, you know, furthers oppression for a white person to stand up against white supremacy does not subject white people to oppression. So, so nothing that they could call me. Uh, and I've certainly been called self-hating. I've been called. There's actually in the Urban Dictionary there is a phrase called Uncle Tim, and it was created. <laughs> it was apparently created for me. This is what I'm told. I don't know. I, I, I don't know where else it would have come from. Um, you know, I was called the Uncle Tom of Whites by Dinesh D'Souza many years ago, which is a high honor coming from him. Um, so, 
But all of those things I just sort of laugh at. I think they're very funny. Well, actually, they're not. They're funny at first, and ultimately they're sad. And the reason they're sad is because um, unlike black folks who who collaborate with white supremacy and thereby contribute to the marginalization of black people, white folks who challenge white supremacy are not hoping for the marginalization of white people. We're not hoping for uh, injury to come to white people. We're not collaborating with a system of anti-white oppression. In fact, what we're trying to do is eradicate all forms of race-based oppression uh, in the name of justice and equality. So it's fundamentally different. And what makes it sad is that when someone doesn't see that or when they believe that challenging white supremacy is equal to challenging white people as good people or that it's, you know, that trying to break down whiteness is the same thing as trying to harm white people. It really shows me that there's a fundamental category error here, right? White people have come to the belief that that whiteness is this organic real thing. And the basis of my argument, the argument of all anti-racist educators and activists is that whiteness is a fraud. It was a category created for the purpose of maintaining inequality. So to break down white supremacy is not about attacking white people. It's not anti-white. It's anti-whiteness. Whiteness is a thing that didn't exist culturally, historically, politically, linguistically, sociologically, anthropologically until the colonies of what became the United States. You know, European people didn't think of themselves as members of one big white team. We spent most of our lives killing each other. I mean, what, you know, European people spent most of their time hunting down other European people and trying to figure out who the witch was. I mean, that was sort of what we did for fun. That was our pastime, was was hurting one another until we figured out it was easier to hurt other people. Um, so we weren't one big team. And, and I think that for so-called white people to believe that that really means something is incredibly sad. You know, something James Baldwin said many years ago, he said, talking to white people, he said, as long as you think that you're white, there's no hope for you. And I think that's very true. As long as white people actually cling to whiteness, we can't be, uh, you know, uh, we can't be American. We can't be human. We, you know, you, you sacrifice your humanity on the altar of this of this thing that only exists as a category meant to demarcate the lines of who has and who doesn't have. And so when white people get that confused with a personal attack on them as people, it goes to show that that too many of us have internalized the idea of whiteness as an actual organic identity. And that's somewhat pathetic. Well, wow, that's, that's a great answer, Tim. This is Frank. I'm going to jump in here. And I have a question relating to that exact answer you gave, which is I know you give a lot of, you know, anti-racism, your, you know, talks and speeches. You know, I watch your documentary, White Like Me, and I, I see that you do a lot of that. How many people, white people, say after you give a speech or a talk, come up to you and say, you know what, I totally get it now. You know, the blinders are off. How can I get started being, you know, changing things? Because I, I was totally blind to the white whiteness that I had, you know, basically inherited through white privilege. What kind of percentage do you really have of people that turn around and change their hearts after hearing you speak? Well, it's hard to know, right? But obviously, very few people are going to do that in the immediate aftermath of any talk. I mean, I'm a, I'm a pretty good speaker, but I ain't that good. You know, I don't think anybody can give a talk and have somebody go. In fact, I'd be worried to be honest with you. I'd be incredibly nervous about anyone who came up to me right after hearing a speech and said, Oh my God, now I get it. Because that's the kind of person that, you know, a week later, they're going to hear a speech by somebody else 
saying the exact opposite thing and it's going to be a good speech and they're going to go, oh, my God, now I totally get that. You know, I'd rather people sit with the discomfort that is caused. And I know that I cause some discomfort in the audience. You can see the body language, um, but you can also see an interesting response. I think I do get I certainly get uh, comments, not usually in the immediate aftermath, but emails, um, you know, where people who I hear from years after the fact who talk about how either something I wrote or something that uh, I said in a media thing or a speech, and not just me, by the way, uh, me and other uh, white anti-racist and other folks of color, because I'm real insistent that when white folks hear me, it's not enough to stay with me. You can't just you can't just immerse yourself in Tim Wise and a handful of other white educators. You've got to go to the source of the wisdom, which is fundamentally black and brown. So I try to turn people on to black and brown authors and educators and activists. And I do hear back, you know, from from white folks and and, and hundreds. I mean, really quite probably over the years, thousands of people uh, from whom I've heard who said, listen, you know, this really sort of set me on a fundamentally different path in life. And I don't want to take credit for that, because like I said, it's not just me. It's it's a, it's a it's a combination of people, a combination of arguments. I think it's starting to happen more now because of social media. You know, I've been doing this on the road for 23 years. And at the beginning, we didn't even have the Internet. So clearly the impact then would have been quite a bit more limited. But I think now, you know, like 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 was said at the outset, that one video that has 14 million views, which is just insane. You know, 14 million views on that one that one particular clip. It's It's a three to four minute clip of a larger 40 minute speech. That one clip being seen 14 or 15 million times and you put all the clips together, it's well over 25 million clips. You know, that's pretty powerful, not just for me, but for other folks. If you can get the word out that way, you never know who it's going to influence. Now, at the same time, you know, I'm not going to pretend that I don't get a lot of uh, really not so friendly you know, responses, too. I mean, I have a file that I keep that's filled with hate mail and threats and things like that. And then right next to it is a file of well wishes and, and, and people who did in fact decide to change their, their study, their academic study, their career choices, how they raise their kids. I mean, so I've got sort of a good file and a bad file. And luckily the good file is much bigger than the bad file. Um, so I think it's, it's making an impact, but I think right now, and this is the key for anyone who hears this is that we have the capacity now, not just me, but all of us, we have the capacity uh, through things like this podcast, through social media, through, you know, uh, all these different channels that we just didn't have even 10 or 15 years ago um, to really spread alternative narratives of the world, how it is, how it has been and how it could be. And I think that's an incredibly important tool so that we could begin to see a real exponential increase in the impact, even though, let's say, for the last 20 years, it's been rather slow. And you can see this right now. I mean, in the last three years. There has been ever since the uh, the uh, the outgrowth of the Black Lives Matter movement or the larger movement for black lives encompassing many different groups. There has also been a parallel growth in the number of white ally anti-racist solidarity groups, particularly surge showing up for racial justice, S.U.R.J., over 100 chapters around the country involving literally tens of thousands of white folks. Now, some more active than others, but tens of thousands of white folks across the country who in the last three years have been acting in solidarity with the movement for black lives. And the unfortunate thing is that while you got tens of thousands of white folks out there doing this anti-racism work, they're getting almost no media coverage. While the white nationalist so-called alt-right neo-Nazi movement that got a lot of attention uh, surrounding the election of Donald Trump gets coverage every day. They had a conference in D.C. after the election that 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 brought 300 people. 
300 white nationalists show up to this thing and it's front page news for a week. Yep. 300 white nationalists show up to this thing and it's on every news channel. You got thousands of white folks out all across this country doing work for police accountability, actually going into white neighborhoods, knocking on doors, talking to other white people on their porch about racism in the justice system. Now, you would think that that might be a news story. And yet the media doesn't want to talk about that. They want to talk about, you know, white nationalism, which, look, we got to pay attention to it. we got to worry about it. But there's also this parallel thing happening. And I think that deserves uh, some attention as well. Yeah, that's that's great. So another another um, point I wanted to bring up with you was you, you we talked about Uncle Tom's a little bit earlier in the conversation. How many black people come up to you, say, at maybe email or even after you give a speech, and they say, hey, you know what? It's all good, man. I made it on my own. Uh, you know, we just need to stop the black on black crime and we'll be fine. You know, we can make it like do you do you have uh, negative response from African-Americans? Well, I mean, that narrative is always out there, of course, you know, that that strain of thought within the black community has always existed. Um, and so, sure, you hear some of that. I think what I hear more in terms of critique from the black community, and I totally understand it. I sympathize with it. I get it entirely um, is much different than that. It's not the oh, everything's cool. We just got to fix our own problems and white people are great and white supremacy is a myth. It's not that what I what I often hear you know, is a much more, I think, um, a much deeper critique, which is more along the lines of, you know, a certain skepticism, right, towards me as a white person doing this work, talking about this stuff. And I totally understand that. If I were a person of color, I would not assume that any white person who spoke up about racism was necessarily genuine uh, until I got to know them and really, you know, watch them for a long time. Because, you know, white folks have have have, have, you know, black and brown folks have been burned by white folks plenty. So what I'm more likely to get as a critique from black and brown folks is the pushback that is rooted in the reality that they can they can look and they can see that people like me get a lot more attention, frankly, than a lot of amazing black and brown activists and educators, scholars and artists who do incredible work, who write books that are every bit as good or better, write essays that are every bit as good or better, are equally good or better as speakers. And maybe don't get, you know, the number of, of speaking engagements that I get or they don't get the book contracts or they don't get as many eyeballs on their on their YouTube videos. Now, that's not true for all people of color. Obviously, there are a lot of folks of color who do. In fact, if you're to make a list of the 20 most prominent, you know, spokespersons, educators, activists or public intellectuals that talk about race, they're almost all going to be people of color. I, I might be the only white person on that list. And that's probably as it should be. It should be overwhelmingly people of color. But I can still understand how a person of color might look askance at a white person um, doing this work, because the reality and I've talked about it and I'm very I'm very upfront about this, is that as a white person doing the work, I do have a certain amount of privilege. My, you know, even though I'm fighting privilege, I still receive privilege. I am taken more seriously, particularly by white people. Right. than I would be if I were a person of color, a person of color can can give the same talk that I give can write the same book, can write the same essay, can tweet the same tweet, and the reaction will be very, very different. And so my task is to try to be, number one, honest about that, number two, accountable for what that means, which, again, is why I go back to what I said earlier about trying to steer folks away from just reading my work and making sure that they're also you know, engaging the work and the wisdom of people of color, because to me that's, that's really the source of anti-racist wisdom in this culture. 
That's, that's a great answer. So one of the last things that I want to ask you is, you know, at the end of White Like Me, the documentary, you say, hey, we've got to, you know, show, as you mentioned, more white people who are actually doing the activism and also call out this coded language, this coded words, because I can't remember the, the, the gentleman's name who, you know, was saying, hey, you can't say the N word, but you can say right. these things. You can say states rights. You can say, you know, yeah. taking your country back. When, you know, the funny thing that I see in the media now is, okay, everybody knows if somebody gets recorded, say, using the N-word or using some racial slurs, they're going to be, you know, fired. They have to resign, like, immediately, right? That's just how things go. Remember the, the Donald Sterling thing? You know, yeah. he gets fired. But yet, Donald Sterling discriminated against African American and Hispanics for years from right. for, in his housing, right? But it wasn't until they got a salacious clip of him using the N-word and saying right. nefarious things about black people. So how do we change the narrative to, to for these code words so that they're just as uh, how would you say um, venomous they're, they're viewed just as venomous venomously as the you know the obviously the obvious word like the n word and other things yeah. I mean what is the real way to educate people to say hey you know what they're saying these same things that they would say in the fifties and sixties except they just dressed it up a little bit right well I mean there are two things somewhat separate also related one is the issue of coded language or what Ian Haney Lopez calls dog whistle politics. Um, obviously, in the clip you mentioned in, in White Like Me is a really revealing clip. It's actually, I think, maybe the most important part of the documentary. And, and you know, it's a clip from 1981. It's a recording of Lee Atwater, who was until his death in the late 80s, uh, maybe 1991. It was early, early, late 80s or early 90s, um, was up until that time, he was like the number one Republican political consultant. He was the Kurt, you know, the Carl Rove of his day. Um, he was, you know, he was the guy. He worked with Reagan. He worked with all the main conservative politicians. And what he was saying in that interview, uh, in a moment of candor, right, was, you know, back in the 50s, you know, you could use the N word. Of course, he actually said the word. I won't, but he did. And he said, you know, you could say it. In the 50s, but then by 1968, you can't say it anymore. You know, it's not you're going to get in trouble. So you got to you got to change it. You got to say states rights. You got to talk about crime. You got to talk about taxes. And then he goes on to explain that the real purpose of that. And he had he had done this himself. He wasn't calling out other people. He was saying this is what we did. This is what I've done. You know, that, that he you know, he was saying he did this, that this is what his team did uh, was using the language. But knowing that, uh, you know, that at the end of the day, black folks would still be the ones who got hurt the most, that states rights or or talking about low taxes and small government was going to result in cuts for programs that, you know, disproportionately benefited folks of color. So it was a way to do racial damage without seeming to be racist. So, number one, the way that we get people to understand the the um, similarity between overt racial slurs and and dog whistle politics is to point out that it was a deliberate strategy. It's not just us on the left who were saying, oh, you know, when you say that, you mean race. No, it's their own people who have admitted this. It's their own people who acknowledge that when Ronald Reagan talked about welfare queens and designer jeans driving Cadillacs to the welfare office and used Linda Taylor, a woman of color, as his operative example, he was trying to paint a picture for white America, when he said in 1976, the first time he ran for president uh, and didn't didn't get the nomination, when he ran in 76 and said that strapping young bucks were buying T-bone steaks at the grocery with food stamps, he was trying to paint a picture. It was a deliberate strategy. That doesn't mean that everybody who ever critiques a social welfare program is necessarily a racist in the sense that we're used to, to using that word. But it does mean that the language itself 
paints a picture, creates an image and has a racist effect. The second issue related to that, and I think it's actually more important even than the dog whistle politics. And you sort of alluded to it in, in the setup to my answer here in, in, in your question was, you know, the problem with um, with with uh, with a lot of the folks who are caught on tape using racial slurs, whether it's Donald Sterling or whoever it might be, is not just that they use certain language or that they think about people in a particular way, whether they use the N word or whether they use a, a the, sort of the more modern variation of it, which I guess the modern uh, you know iteration is to use the word thug to refer to to black folks. Right. That's sort of the modern the modern way of saying the N word without saying it. But the yeah. real issue is what you alluded to, Donald Sterling's history with regard to housing discrimination, with regard to actual, you know, active institutional discrimination. Same thing with Donald Trump, right? The, the issue with Donald Trump, I don't know if Donald Trump has ever used the N-word or not. I know that, uh, you know, there's this rumor that there are these tapes out there that were sort of off-camera apprentice tapes, and Tom Arnold says he has them and he's going to release them. I don't know if that's true or not. But what I do know is the Justice Department found him and his daddy responsible for housing discrimination on two different occasions. In, in what were at the time and still to this day are among the biggest settlements in the history of the department for housing discrimination. What I do know is that he stoked racial fears directly in the pages of the New York Times after the so-called Central Park jogger rape case, where he continued then and continues to this day to blame young men who we now know are not responsible for the crime, both because DNA evidence says they weren't and because the guy who actually did it later confessed to having done it. So that's the stuff that concerns me more. Did Donald Trump use all kinds of coded language? Yes. I would say, for instance, when he when he got up and and said, you know, black people live in hell. You can't walk down the street without getting shot. You have no education. You have no jobs. You know, he, he tried to make that sound like he was being sympathetic. Really, what he was doing, first of all, he was he was stereotyping the black community because it just isn't true that most black people don't have jobs. It just isn't true that most black people don't have education. It just isn't true that black people get shot every time they walk down the street. I mean, the reality is crime in the black community, contrary to all the stuff we hear in media and from politicians, crime in the black community is actually down by 35 to 40 percent since the late 80s or early 90s. The homicide rate for black men in this country is actually lower today than it was in 1950. So the now obviously there are outliers and there are issues in places like Chicago and others where they've had upticks in homicide. But overall, crime was worse in the 80s when Ronald Reagan was president. Crime was worse in the early 90s when George H.W. Bush was president. Crime was actually worse numerically in the mid 70s. Right. When we had both Republicans and then Jimmy Carter as president and in some communities was even worse in the 50s. So uh, the reality says one thing. Donald Trump used that language, though, because he knows it paints a picture. Right. If Donald Trump says black people live in hell, he reminds white people of how dysfunctional they already think black people are. He didn't do that to be kind and compassionate and show concern for black people. That was the mainstream media spin. Oh, he's trying to reach out and show that he cares. No, he's not. He's trying to look at white people and go, hey, you remember the inner city? It's a really dangerous place. We haven't even used that phrase inner city for like 20 years, right? But he resurrected this image of black decrepitude and black dysfunction and black pathology, that was coded language. But what concerns me more than the coded language, as bad as that is, is what he says he wants to do. In other words, the coded language is nothing compared to the fact that he advocated nationwide stop and frisk. 
Right. So you're advocating a policy of nationwide stop and frisk racial profiling. That concerns me way more than the rhetoric you use. You're proposing to build a wall to keep people from coming from Mexico. That concerns me more than the fact that you sat there eating a taco bowl at Trump Tower and saying, I love Hispanics. I mean, that's pretty clumsy and stupid. But the bigger issue is the systemic discrimination that he has announced he supports. That's not even the stuff he's hiding, right? The dog whistle stuff is subtle. That stuff about nationwide stop and frisk, a Muslim registry, and a wall on the southern border, that's not subtle. That is the heart of his campaign and the heart of his appeal. Wow. Wow. That, man, I need to, I wish you would, I mean, that's the crazy thing. I wish everything you just said, how, I guess, the, I, I know I said the last question, but just the last thing is, how did that manage to just get by all the voters in this past election, everything you just said, pretty much a lot of, you know, it was painfully obvious to me and, and Byron and probably people like yourself. But I mean, how was it just cloaked? It just it just blows my mind, I guess. Well, let, first off, let's be clear. It didn't get by most voters. Donald Trump lost by three million votes. So most people who went to the polls actually knew that he was lying, that he was a fraud that he was playing upon racist bigotry, religious bigotry, and other forms of prejudice and bias. Most Americans who actually went to the polls rejected him, and he needs to be reminded of that every single time he opens his mouth, and his supporters need to be reminded of it every time they open theirs. The only reason he's president is because 75,000 people spread over three states uh, happened to vote for him more than they voted for Hillary Clinton. In the state of Wisconsin, it was 12,000 people. In the state of Michigan, it was, what, 20 or 30,000 people. In Pennsylvania, it was 40,000 or whatever. Uh, those votes go differently, and we're having a very different conversation right now. The only reason that he's president is because we continue to operate on the basis of an electoral college, which is an antiquated system put in place by the founders in large part, not entirely, but in large part, because slaveholding states didn't have a big enough voting population to feel that they had sufficient power. So if you had a direct election for president, which they didn't support either at the time, but if you had based the election on a popular vote, uh, you would have to have enfranchised enslaved people in, in states like Virginia in order to have a sizable enough population. Well, they didn't want to do that. They didn't want black folks to vote. And a third of the population in Virginia, 50% in South Carolina, you know, 40% in certain other southern states were enslaved persons who weren't going to be given the right to vote. And so as a result, they needed a system that picked electors based on something other than a direct actual popular vote. So in part, the Electoral College is there as, as a as a giveaway to white supremacy. And here we are 200 and, you know, however many years, 240 years uh, later, and we are still burdened with the vestiges of that system. Which is, again, one more very good reason why when white people say, why can't we just get over slavery? Well, because it just picked your president. That's why it just picked your president. And for every for every white person who doesn't understand who every white liberal who doesn't like Donald Trump, every white non-liberal who doesn't like Donald Trump. You want to understand why we can't stop talking about slavery. It is because a system of slavery was it was implicated in why we have an electoral college. So slavery as a system, just put Donald Trump in the White House 240 years after the Electoral College was founded and 150 years after slavery was abolished. So go figure. We are talking to Tim Wise, author, anti-racist activist. You can visit timwise.org for more information. We really appreciate your time and we're being we're going to be greedy with it. I'm going to try to sneak in two more questions with you if you have time. Mm -hmm. uh, and the first is to piggyback on that answer 
on how Frank mentioned that, you know, how did some of that coded language get past so many people? I heard you speak about the law of 12s, and I wonder if you could explain that to the audience, how it's used in advertising when most companies feel like if they can get a particular commercial out there, I believe it's 12 times that they will have that consumer hooked in. And a lot of times from from the conservative right, you repeat something enough. You stated how there's a reality versus what people think and how the numbers don't match. But if you repeat something enough that, hey, black people are all on welfare, they're all criminals and thugs, people will believe it. Could you explain that to our audience on the whole law of 12? Well, many years ago, you know, I had I had a friend who was in advertising and and he was telling me there's this thing called either the rule of 11 or the rule of 12. And I honestly I can't remember which it was, but we'll just go with rule of 12 for for the sake of argument. Um, And and what he was saying was it's this idea that that companies have that the more times you see an ad, obviously, the more likely you'll be to buy a product. And what the marketing research was showing was that after about a dozen times of seeing an ad for a particular consumer product, that is the point where you begin to see significant gains in sales. So, you know, the first five or six times that you see that ad for, you know, whatever product, the first couple of times might be so abstract that you don't even really know what the product is. And if you're like me, you know, I've had that experience where the ad comes on and it's really slick, but it's almost too slick and you don't even know what the hell they're trying to sell you, right? So you're sitting there and you're going, what, what, what was that? Was that, was that toothpaste? What, what, are they, what is that? And, and on the one hand, you sit there and you think to yourself, well, that was a really stupid ad buy because I don't even know what they're selling. But they're not idiots. They know exactly what they're doing. They know that by the fifth or sixth time that that ad comes on, you're going to pay extra special attention because the first four times you were like, I don't know what that was. By the time you get to 12, all of a sudden you're like, oh, my God, I got to go get a Taco Bell crunch wrap. Now, you didn't want the damn Taco Bell crunch wrap. But you saw the ad 12 times and you're like, not only do I want it, I want it at breakfast, right? I want it at 6 o'clock in the morning. I need to have a taco wrapped up in a burrito with an egg and a piece of sausage in it at 5.30. You didn't want that last year. You didn't want that five years ago. Some fool at Taco Bell was like, watch what I can make them buy and create this demand, right? Now, if they can make you buy a Taco Bell crunch wrap at 5.30, 6 o'clock in the morning, they can make you switch toothpaste, toilet paper, tennis shoes, smartphone, um, tablet brand. If they can make you, you know, get, go from one rental car company to another rental car company, just because you saw an ad 12 times or a really good one during the Super Bowl, how much easier do you figure it would be to make you buy into a racial stereotype, religious stereotype, sexual stereotype, gender stereotype, economic or class stereotype? Because we've been seeing that ad so to speak, metaphorically speaking. We've been seeing that advertisement since we were children. We've seen it way more than 12 times. And so even good people, people who are not, and I think most people are good people, even people who are not, you know, sort of intrinsically biased, overtly biased, can still fall prey to those stereotypes, just like you and I can go to the grocery. They always tell you, go to the grocery, don't go hungry, right? And the reason they tell you not to go to the grocery hungry is because you will then buy stuff you don't need. You'll get up to the checkout. You'll be like, damn, I need a Snickers bar. You don't need a Snickers bar. You just think you or you don't need beef jerky, whatever they got up at the front like that. Like, you know, you didn't need that. You didn't go to the store for that. That wasn't even on your list. Right. But now it's an impulse purchase because you've been conditioned to think that you need the Snickers. Oh, and I need the People magazine and I need the National Enquirer or whatever the heck they got up there. Right. And so. The truth is you can be conditioned even against your normal impulse. Now, the good news, and there is some good news, 
is that if you can be conditioned against your interest and against your normal way of thinking, you can also counter condition, right? You can train yourself to think different. So just like the with the grocery example, I can force myself to, to think when I go to the grocery. Right? I, I can consciously go to the grocery and say, all right, I'm thinking about this. I'm not going to buy the snack food that I don't really want and isn't good for me. I'm not going to buy the Snickers up at the front counter. I'm going to eat before I go to the grocery so I don't overpurchase, right? You can, you can take steps to condition against your conditioning, but you can't do that unless you realize you have been conditioned. So the, so the first order of business is to acknowledge the number that's being run on you by a society that has encouraged us all to buy into racial stereotypes, religious stereotypes, class and gender stereotypes, sexual stereotypes. The minute that you start to own that you've been played by that is the minute that you can get free from it. The problem is we don't want to admit that we've been played. One, One final question I have for you. Sure. And I admit that most of the questions I've asked you, I've, I've heard most of your answer or some of the answer before, but I sure. definitely wanted you to share it with the audience. This sure. question I have not heard asked to you. You may have answered it, but I haven't heard it yet. Okay. Uh, and black people are very divided on this question because we've had folks on here like uh, Quinnen Brooker and others who mm-hmm. are on one side. Uh, in your opinion, did Barack Obama as a two term president, did he do enough for black people as far as advancing uh, their economic status and, and everything else that would, would help them in this country? Did he do enough, in your opinion, or could he have done a whole lot more? Well, of course he did not do enough. And that would be the answer that I expect I would give with any person chosen to be president of the empire. You know, I don't expect that anyone chosen to be the president of the American empire, so long as it remains a far-flung political, military, and economic empire, is ever going to be able to do enough for marginalized populations, be they of color, be they be they gender minorities uh, in terms of power, be they sexual minorities, religious minorities, because the empire has certain, you know, a capitalist militaristic system has certain assumptions built into it. So, no, he didn't do enough. Um, and and now, did he do more than John McCain would have done? Uh, yes, I think I think it is fair to say the answer to that is yes. Did he do more than Mitt Romney would have done? I think the answer to, to that is yes. Uh, did he do more than Donald Trump is going to do? I think that's inarguably the case. So there are always two issues, right? Number one is, are we satisfied? And the answer to that has to be no. I think if we get satisfied with the idea that having a, a black or brown face in a high place is sufficient for the cause of liberation, we're lost. Obviously, the, the task is eradicating white supremacy, and that's going to be something that we collectively do. No president can do that. No no head of the empire can do that. That won't happen until the empire is no longer. And I don't mean to, you know, I'm not talking about like overthrowing and smashing the system and some violent uprising. I'm talking about until the United States becomes a nation among nations and doesn't try to control and dictate uh, world affairs in the way that we do that then leads us into wars that are not at all about self-defense, that are really about protecting the economic and political interest of a very narrow band of elites. I don't expect that any president, no matter how in, well-intended they are, will really be able to get away from 
the kinds of policies that continue to marginalize black and brown peoples all around the globe. Will some be better than others? Yes. And that's the second point, which is even though nobody can do the job as well as we'd like them to do it, it still does matter at the margins who is elected. I would never want to encourage the cynicism that says, oh, well, you know, Barack Obama failed black folks and therefore why did we even vote for him? I mean, you know, things can always be worse. They really can. And I think we're about to potentially see the truth of that statement. I would be very surprised if we don't. For those who don't think Barack Obama accomplished anything, wait about six months and get back. Because I think we're about to see how wrong that was. On the other hand, for those who think Barack Obama did enough, wait around six months. Because if he'd really done enough, Donald Trump couldn't undo it. If he'd really done enough, Republican Congress couldn't undo it. If he'd really done enough... The, you know, Democratic Party, as inadequate as they are, wouldn't have lost ground all around the country over the last several years. You know, we didn't grow any more people like him in the sense of people who could inspire voters. And so I think I think the Democratic Party has a lot of soul searching to do. I think progressives have a lot of soul searching to do. And I think we all have to make a differentiation between what we do on Election Day whether it's in 08 or 2016, and what we do 364 days out of the year when it's not election day. Because I think a lot of people put so much faith in Barack Obama that they just figured, oh, he's in there now. We got this. Everybody was talking about it's post-racial. And, of course, that was mostly white folks that said that. But there were people of color, too, who went to sleep for a minute. Oh, yes. You know, and, and, and felt like, oh, things are good. Now, the good news is last three years, young black and brown folks have been leading the charge to say, yeah, yeah, we're not satisfied with that. You know, it, it, there's it, there's a reason that Black Lives Matter emerges and gets as much accomplished narratively in, the, in, in, in this administration. I'm not sure that would have happened under another administration. I'm not trying to give Barack Obama credit for it, but I'm saying I think it's important to have black led movements challenging black leadership, even when it's ostensibly progressive black leadership. That's really valuable. So so I think there's been some amazing black political activism in the last several years. But the fact is, for the first five years of the Obama administration, a lot of that was not happening in the same way. And thankfully, that started to change. But I think for the first five years, the same thing with Bill Clinton, you know, for, for almost the entire Clinton administration, you had a lot of progressive folks that were just went to sleep because they were like, oh, you know, Bill's in there. He'll handle it. And he reads the same magazines we read and he's cool. And and then look what happened. Right. So we've got to realize what we do on Election Day. Yeah, it's important. But ultimately, it's harm reduction. It's like giving out clean needles to heroin addicts in the park. I support giving clean needles to heroin addicts because I think it cuts down on hepatitis cuts down on HIV transmission, it saves lives, but it doesn't get anybody off heroin, right? So at the end of the day, you give out needles to addicts to save their lives because it's better than the alternative, but you still got to deal with what? You got to deal with heroin education, you got to deal with rehab, you got to deal with providing the healthcare resources, the counseling resources. Same thing is true here. Elections are important as harm reduction, but the real important thing is what are we doing the other 364 days out of the year? That's what matters. Tim Wise. Anti-racist activist, author. Uh, Again, you can visit timwise.org for more information. Also, you can follow him on Twitter at Tim Jacob Wise. Um, You mentioned the whole six month thing. I was wondering if if you're available, can we have you back on? Because that's how they they judge presidents by those first six months. Yeah. Uh, If you're available, can you come back on and we'll see exactly what what Trump has done? Anytime. Absolutely. I would love to do it. I would love to do it. All right. Well, we thank you for your time. Uh, Many of our listeners, uh, they're the ones that have shared your videos many, many times on social media. So I appreciate uh, that. 
I'm sure they enjoyed this. And we can't thank you enough for coming on, sir. Thank you. Thank you all. I appreciate it. All right. Be good. Want to thank Mr. Wise again for coming on, politically entertaining. Uh, Frank, he gave some very detailed uh, answers. Um, I was I was surprised at how he was raised. I did not know he was he was raised like that at a uh, historically black college around so many black students. But that definitely speaks to why he's so passionate in the things that he do, does, and as far as uh, fighting against racism and and being an activist as he is. I certainly had more questions that I would have liked to ask him, but, you know, we were running short on time. And I felt like his answer on Barack Obama certainly satisfied both sides. I'd love to hear, you know, when we have Quentin Brooker on, his take on that. Uh, also, there's a comedian by the name of Corey Holcomb who's very critical of Obama. So I felt like for people who love Obama, you know, he gave him his props, but he, you know, he said, you know, Obama did not do enough uh, What? did you specifically take from this interview with Mr. Watts? I mean, to me, I would I'd recommend everybody listen to the interview and also watch White Like Me, which is which was very informative. And in watching White Like Me, one of the things we talked about near the end of the interview was uh, Lee Atwater, the late Lee Atwater, and how he was a Republican strategist who basically, uh, how would you say, he, he introduced the dog whistle terms into mainstream culture, which now... You know, thug and states' rights and smaller government and hard work and take country back, all being against African Americans and other, you know, minorities that are stereotyped negatively. He introduced that speak, that jargon, um, that, you know, the that Reagan and, and Bush and all these other Republicans pushed down, you know, the American people as, as, as a, as values, but really it was a way of saying, hey, we're going to limit the mobility of these Negroes and put them in their place. And that's been going on since, since you know, since uh, obviously after a little bit after civil rights. So I just think that it's, people need to open their eyes and realize that there's still a lot of things that need to be fixed. Certainly uh, there's a lot of things we can do. Obviously we're on this podcast. We're trying to, you know, make our voices heard and known and things like that. But just that was very eye-opening, especially when you hear a, another white person say exactly what was done and how it was done it it really lets you know that there are some people that really have some negative uh you know plans out there for minorities so just good to have your eyes open for that we we certainly hope to uh have him back he said he would come back so i definitely would like to talk to him after the first hundred days of this trump presidency uh which i want to talk about with you a little bit um i feel like in about and I and I saw that I'm I see that I'm not the minority in this. I hear a lot of people saying this that he may not even finish this first term, whether he's impeached or whether he's resigned. I got him going two to three years because the president of the United States is the most criticized job in the world. And we've seen how petty Donald Trump is and how he hates criticism. If he's gonna be responding to every little thing that's said, I don't see how he's gonna have time to run the country. He's already rich. I can literally see him saying, you know what? I don't need this. I'm going to go back to running my businesses and you guys can have it since you're not appreciating what I'm doing. I can see him, you know, resigning. But I want to talk about his cabinet picks. Um, did any of them scare you? Uh, you got Ben Carson, who's going to be the HUD secretary. He picked former governor of Texas, Rick Perry, for energy. One of his picks that got a lot of attention, uh, Senator Jeff Sessions of Alabama, who during his uh, 
hearing one of the protesters had one of the quotes of the year where he's dressed in a Klan robe and said, you can't arrest me. I'm white. It was sarcastic. He was mocking uh, Sessions, obviously. Tillerson also is another one for Secretary of State who's gotten a lot of attention. And his most savvy pick, in my opinion, Frank, Elaine Chow, who was the labor secretary during Bush's administration. But more importantly, she is the wife of Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, who is a Republican in the Senate. He's the Majority Leader of the Senate. And so I think that's definitely going to help when Trump is trying to get things passed in the Senate. The fact that McConnell's wife is in his cabinet. Uh, did any of his do any of his picks scare you? Uh, I know a lot of people, like I said, had something to say about Sessions. What uh, what are your thoughts on the Trump cabinet picks? I think everybody in his cabinet is a one percenter and they're going to do things to help those who least probably least need the help. And they will disadvantage those who most need the help. And, and that's and they don't see anything wrong with that because they are the people that kind of believe that they've worked. They've gotten everything that you know that they have themselves and why can't these other people just step up and it's too bad that they can't so you know i don't really have too much to say i don't want to you know i could go on and on about all his picks obviously sessions uh is the closest to home and being him being attorney general with, with certainly with the climate with police and things like that and things like black lives matter that that's probably the most concerning mm-hmm. um one to me obviously they're all concerning but certainly just locally thinking um being from Alabama, still visiting Alabama at times and knowing that Jeff Sessions, a guy who certainly would be for a stop and frisk, a Muslim registry and things like that. Those, he, he to me um, is the most to go from Loretta Lynch to Jeff Sessions just doesn't it's like it just doesn't seem right. Tillerson, the, the CEO of ExxonMobil, has some big de- business deals with Russia. And you pretty much said all that all you needed to say about Sessions. Uh, so it's it's going to be an interesting presidency. That's all I can say. A very interesting presidency. So uh, watch out. One last thing. Trump is going to keep his Twitter handle uh, real Donald Trump. He's not going to go to POTUS, which lets you know, as I mentioned earlier, how he likes to respond to every single uh, critique that he gets. Uh, he's going to be on that Twitter. Those 140 characters are very important to him. Uh like I said at the top of the show, man, we're proud of the interview we had today. We, we hope to we felt like this was a great guest to have for the very first episode of season two. Going to try our best to get some great guests throughout the year for you. Uh, but as always, I just want to thank you all for tuning in. Some of you guys missed us, kept asking me when we we're going to be back. Well, we're back. Uh, subscribe. We're on iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Podbean. Uh, subscribe and also tell people about us. Help spread the word. Uh, I want to say a rest in peace. We lost. I mentioned how we lost celebrities at the top of the show. We lost for you wrestling fans. Superfly Jimmy Snooker, rest in peace. And even though he had a controversial last few years of his life, uh, Bishop Eddie Long also passed. Uh, I'm not here to say was he guilty or not on what he was accused of. A man, a man has passed away. There are people mourning over that. So rest in peace. Again, thanks, everybody, for listening. We'll see you guys soon on another episode of Politically Entertaining. Thank you for listening to Politically Entertaining. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast via iTunes and visit politicallyentertaining.com for the latest in political news and updates.